0: Welcome to Global Data Pod. I'm Bruce Kasman. With me is Natasha Kaneva and Jahangir Aziz. And on today's episode, we're gonna talk about geopolitics in Russia. And there's a lot to go over here. There's the politics, there's the oil markets, there's the economic repercussions of it. Uh, But why don't we jump in first with you, Natasha, and start with oil markets. Uh, You've been processing the news for this week, uh, this invasion, the sanction uh, threats, Uh, where are you in terms of your thinking about what this is going to do uh, to oil markets as we go through the next few weeks and the next number of months?
1: Yes, thank you, Bruce. Um, So uh, I I think for me, the changing point, in my opinion, was Monday, the Monday speech given by uh, Russian President Putin. So to me, this was a watershed moment. Uh, I felt the messaging was that Russia is ready to escalate to achieve particular goal and Russia is ready to bear the cost of that escalation. So that was the message. It's definitely changed my thinking. Um, So what we're uh, at this point or at this stage of the conflict, uh, we see uh, pretty much no path towards an easy de-escalation. And because of that, we expect a steady rise of tensions in Ukraine and corresponding intensification of sanctions from the West. And in that case, We could see an extended period of elevated geopolitical tensions and high-risk premium across all the commodities given Russia's far-reaching impact on global commodities markets. So uh, not particular to oil, but in general, we raised our commodity price forecast across the board by 10 to 20% so looking at the oil oil clearly is uh, extremely important because russia is number 2 and number 3 supplier of oil especially considering the very depleted state of global inventories at the moment so that that matters immensely russia has always been a very reliable supplier of oil even at the height of the cold war russia never stopped its volumes of uh, of exports and because of that to me, this is definitely, you know, I would define as a, the uh, watershed moments that I actually have to even think about the probabilities that, uh, uh, you know, the regime has changed and Russia may actually take uh, retaliate yes against the uh, against the West by reducing its energy exports. So to put but, but, some but numbers, Natasha. Yep, yeah, let me, I
0: want to just make sure we talk about numbers, but also recognize your forecast. Um, doesn't actually incorporate a full-scale retaliation where Russia pulls back. It's about geopolitical risk. It's about the risk of this happening. Is that, is that correct? And Okay, correct. so go through the numbers in, in that context mm-hmm. of these risks staying elevated and um, markets putting in a significant uh, premium in oil.
1: Correct. So the, the assumption is that we do not actually make a particular change in our models in terms of there will be a disruption of the Russian flow, so Russia will actually stop okay. Uh, producing particular commodities the assumption is that the market's perception around the risks will will change and because of that currently the market for example is applying about uh, based on our calculations about six percent probabilities that actually situation will escalate and i think considering the headline news uh, this is fair to say that this probability is is low yes and the market actually needs to adjust this thinking so the way we uh, make an assumption is that uh, a, a bit higher probabilities than 6% should give you a Brent oil price averaging about $110 per barrel in the second quarter, $100 per barrel in the third quarter, and we're res- resetting back to our fair value for this year of $90 uh, by the fourth quarter of this year. So this is now just, becoming our baseline view.
0: And just let's round this out because, as you noted uh, uh, up top, the – uh, Russia is an exporter of a broad range of commodities. What other global commodities do you think are going to be most influenced by this sense of geopolitical tension, tension continuing here for a while?
1: Um, so, the natural gas usually is mentioned as number two, just because Russia is about uh, has about twenty percent market share in the natural gas market. Um, so. But looking at the European balances at the moment, uh, a lot of things went right for Europe. Yes, they had a mild winter. Uh, Japan and Asia in general had mild winter. Uh, Wind generation is up 50% across many countries in Europe. And because of that, Europe actually is ending up with a situation that they have a buffer of inventories for the summer. The main question is what will happen next winter. Yes, the winter of 2022, 2023, mostly because Nord Stream 2, Clearly, now is part of the sanctions, and uh, it was. I'd like to be able to spend time on
0: spring and summer before we talk about next winter. But uh, right, Uh,
1: so closer to yes, closer (laughs) to to today, uh, the next in line would be metals. Uh, Russia has a substantial share of production. If we look at copper, nickel, uh, aluminum, Russia has about ten to twelve percent market share. If we remove China out of the equation, is because whatever is produced in China actually stays in China; it doesn't get exported. So aluminum is the one metal we watch very closely, just because forty percent of the production of aluminum is actually energy. Yes, and we we do believe that market will start pricing in the probability of constrained energy supply. So aluminum could potentially get hit very uh, very significantly. Um, so and then if you look at uh, PGMs group metals, it's platinum and palladium. Um, you cannot. Make a car without using platinum or palladium. Yes, when you have a car, you need to have a catalytic converter which scrubs the emissions. Uh, and because of that, you need the platinum or palladium. And Russia produces 40% of the global. Uh, palladium and 20% of the global platinum, so um, that that definitely needs to be adjusted in terms of cost inflation for for production of uh, of a car. And finally, it's um, agriculture. So combined, Ukraine and Russia produce about 30% of the global wheat. Uh, so it's a significant uh, significant amount of production, uh, one third. So that that's definitely will have implications for the markets. But overall, by increasing our oil prices, that puts a significant amount of pressure on the agricultural commodities just because uh, of the biofuels. Yes, like the soy, um, soy and corn are direct substitution for oil in terms of biofuels. So that's, you know, we had to increase our prices there as well. So it's a lot of interconnectivity in the commodities markets in terms of implications.
2: So but this going,
0: is...
2: Go on, sorry, John. Going back, yeah, so going back to um, to oil, how are you factoring in for example, what happens to Iran supplies? You talked about $115 a barrel for the second quarter. Where does Iran fit into all of this?
1: Excellent question, Jehangir. So uh, what is interesting um, is that even as bilateral relations have soured, Russian diplomats uh, have continued working with their European and US counterparts to revive the nuclear agreement. Um, So the signals we're receiving from the market is that they are ready to cross the line. Uh, We are expecting a significant amount of production to come through if indeed uh, the agreement is reached. So it's about 1 million barrels per day of, um, of storage that they can easily ship into the markets immediately. And then another 1 million barrels per day of production increase that we could expect into the second half of the year. So by all means, a very substantial amount of volumes that could be coming through. Just to give you an example, of what that what that could mean for the market is that if we say that the Russian tensions actually will de-escalate, um, but the Iranian deal will get approved, the then we, the, the prices we'll be looking at uh, is you know, average price of about $90 for the first half of the year, declining to $88 by the third quarter, and then $86 by the fourth quarter of 2022. So definitely, uh, ten dollars lower from current levels if we assume de-escalation in the Russian uh, in the Russian tensions by all means.
0: So let me kind of just come back here to this idea that what we're seeing is a market that's worrying about tensions being elevated, but not necessarily seeing Russian oil get completely taken off the market, and that that has to do with an interplay here of how the conflict plays out, but more importantly, the interplay between uh, Russian actions and U.S. Uh, sanctions, or U.S. and Western sanctions, we should say. So Jahangir, you're, you've been thinking and writing about this. Uh, what behind the scenes of what uh, Natasha's talking about do you kind of see as both the, uh, uh, the dynamic where um, we're watching now, but also what do you see as the main the main risk in that, um, in that space?
2: So, you know, if you just go back to the sanctions that have been imposed so far, uh, Bruce, uh, they aren't big. They are, you know, modest in scope, modest in intensity. Um, they are basically used the specially designated nationalists to, you know, freeze um, you know, uh, bank accounts, et cetera, of the people in the Duma who voted. Uh, for the separation, for the recognition of these two republics and some other entities, including some oligarchs, you have a couple of smaller banks being brought into the sanctions list. Um, there's a whole bunch of the banks in Russia that have already been on the sanctions sanctions list, but you're just adding two more smaller banks. And you know, the big one would be that new debt, Rus- new Russian sovereign debt. U.S. entities are going to be banned from trading. In them, both in the primary market and the secondary market, starting from March first, again, that is unlikely to have, uh, you know, that kind of an impact. I think really the one that people are focusing on is that, which is not unrelated to the sanctions, by the way, is that German authorities have stopped certifying uh, Nordstrom too. Right. So that's where we are. I think, you know, you could easily see an escalation of these sanctions taking place. Um, And we've written about, you know, the scope of the sanctions and they could become seriously problematic both for the Russian economy as well as for the global financial markets and spillover. And some of them is that if the, you know, ban on secondary market trading is extended to existing debt, for example, or if, uh, you know, bigger financial institutions are brought into the sanctions list or even corporates, uh, particularly energy sector firms are brought into an export control. And that could really, or, or, or tech firms can be brought under So let me just control.
0: sort of ask if we had to sort of focus on one or two things that would tip us over here, both um, in terms of sanctions being far more potentially impactful, but also far more likely to elicit the kind of uh, response that would be uh, taking significant amount of Russian oil off the market. What would be the ones you'd put at the top of the list there?
2: I think the top of the list is if U.S. now says that financial institutions in Russia cannot uh, get their rubles converted into U.S. dollars or hard currency that would be a serious problem and then go a step further and say that your russian financial institutions cannot get access to uh, you know us dollar settlement systems for example swift now that is going to have a global impact so you know if you are a tea producer in india say, exporting tea to uh, russia uh, all of a sudden you cannot you can you know, sell the tea, but you can't get any uh, dollars for it. Uh, so all of a sudden, it is not just Russia that is brought into the fray, but all other trading partners of Russia are brought into the fray. Um, you know, US could, uh, you could, you, you, you could, not, US wouldn't be able to stop, for example, the sale of natural gas or the sale of oil uh, from Russian entities. But then the question is, uh, who are buying that oil? How would you settle that? So, I think the settlement system and the ruble convertibility can have a serious impact, not just on the Russian economy, but also spill over to global financial markets and definitely to its trading partners. Just to give you a statistics, only 15% of Russian exports are denominated in ruble, 85% is denominated either in US dollars or in Europe. So I think that's the big nuclear option, which clearly the administration hasn't uh, adopted as yet. Uh, I would just point out that there has also been a shift in the way the US is approaching sanctions, at least based on what the White House had been indicating and in the language in the bipartisan bill, which is yet to be uh, voted upon that is uh, sitting in the floor of the Senate. uh, The idea was that in the event of an invasion, uh, U.S. would bring all the options on the table at once and at its most extreme level. Uh, the U.S. clearly hasn't done that. And this is a significant shift from the strategy that the U.S. was indicating to the strategy that it's actually following. Uh, it is now going back to the traditional um, you know, uh, framework of sanctions, which is, proportionate and phased-in response rather than all-in-one response. And I think uh, part of, for example, Natasha's views on continued tensions, et cetera, comes from that, that this is going to be a phased-in response, and therefore tensions will remain elevated for a long period of time.
0: So um, maybe now let's sort of think about the the macroeconomy here. And um, part of this is to kind of think about um, what oil prices do to growth and what do they do in, in ways that we might not appreciate perhaps also to the inflation and the central bank um, uh, landscape that we're following. You know, Let's start with growth and just let me begin by saying we did an exercise in January. We kind of asked the question, what if we took a, a good chunk of Russian supply off the market? Uh, and we argued at that point that something close to a 2.5 million barrel a day uh, supply shock uh, could uh, push oil prices up towards $150 barrel and also take in that context uh, something like 1.5% off the uh, GDP uh, this year, which if it was felt in a couple of quarters could be a fairly significant uh, uh, drag on global growth. Uh, that's not the numbers you're talking about, Natasha, and certainly part of the reason is we're not Going to the extreme on sanctions. Part of it is because we've got the Iranian uh, picture that is um, uh, possibly a cushion. I think another point we should just make here is even at 115, embedded in that price story is a somewhat stronger underlying demand picture uh, that pushed up oil earlier this year. Uh, global, global demand has been stronger than we expected. And some of that move up we saw, there's been a significant rise in oil prices in the first uh, two months of the year. It's not just Russia, it's also global demand. Is that, That's right, Natasha, now?
1: Uh, so yes, you're absolutely correct. So global demand is holding up. So despite, uh, I would say the complaints from major consuming nations, just looking at the statistics, we actually do not see that demand is suffering. as mobility continues increasing, people continue flying, so we... We cannot say that that's somehow impacting the underlying demand. So demand has been uh, has been very, very supportive. Uh, for the year as a whole, for example, um, in our November outlook, we uh, we were pencilling in global oil demand this year to grow um, to average about four hundred twenty. Uh, KBD, or 0.4 million barrels per day, above 2019 levels, as we stand today, we actually believe that this number will be closer to 0.7, 0.75, something like that. Um, so by all means, yes, we're definitely dealing with a very strong uh, demand backdrop.
2: But, but, so, but, but again, Bruce, you know, in that, and, and Natasha too, I mean, in that calculation that you're doing, uh, are, are, I mean, you also need to, you know, consider the fact that the Omicron, Um, you know, impact is fading and that the economies are recovering from that. And more importantly, perhaps to me, is that, you know, the health of the household's balance sheet. You know, if you get oil from 95 to 115, that is going to move pump prices, pump uh, price of gasoline up considerably. But the question is, are the household balance sheets strong enough to absorb that? Uh, So how are you Thinking about that, uh, Bruce, in your uh, calculations of well, the growth impact or the inflation impact. So I, I way
0: I would look at it is, is from two angles. First is just gauging the size of the shock. And as we uh, discussed in the scenario we put together in January, we had oil at 150. We had about a 1.5% uh, hit to global growth. Uh, if that was felt in two quarters, that would be a 3% drag in the first half of the year. That'd be quite substantial. Uh, given what we're saying about what's driving oil with demand and supply, both being factors, given uh, the fact that the shock in a world in which Russia doesn't actually fully take uh, supply off the market and Iran as an offset only gets us to 115, I think it's, it's reasonable to say we're talking about a, a shock, which is probably about a half of the size of the one we were anticipating. Which is maybe you know somewhere between a half and three quarters of a percent, and again, if you if you put that on the first half of the year, that could be one to one and a half percent or so off global growth. So that's I think uh, not in not a small shock. And but then, as you're saying, John Gere, everything is about context. How a shock gets transmitted depends on context. And I think the context that you noted is that we have a household sector globally and specifically in the U.S., which has shown enormous. Resiliency, we're already absorbing an energy price increase, some of which because of natural gas price uh, increases earlier. Uh, and the consumer in the US, the consumer in Western Europe uh, looks like it's willing to eat into a very uh, large reservoir of excess savings in order to um, um, you know, keep moving forward. In addition, again, as you noted, and I think quite importantly, here there's a good case to be made that momentum is now actually starting uh, to build and that, I think, is a powerful story against the backdrop of both the Omicron drag fading and also simply the fact that we still have not normalized large components of activity around the world uh, from the cumulative damage done by the, uh, the pandemic over the last uh, uh, two years or so. So all of these things are good. The, 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 the really counterpoint to that, though, is the good stuff is pretty much already in our forecast. So you know, keep in mind, we've got over 5% global growth in the second quarter, and that is building in an Omicron bounce. It is building in a, a resilient household sector. So if we're sort of thinking about this in absolute terms, I would say, yeah, let's not be too worried that this will throw off the global economy. We're going to need a, a much bigger shock than what um, your view of sanctions and, and the way Natasha is translating that into oil markets today is seeming to deliver. However, when I look at our current forecast, I don't think we have the $115 oil in the, um, in the market, uh, In excuse me, in our economic forecast. So from that point of view, I think we still have to emphasize there are downside risks uh, to our growth forecast. But our growth forecast is for over 5% growth in the second quarter. So to take a percent off of that even, and I'm not suggesting that's as far as we need to go, um, but that would still leave us with a very solid, in fact, quite frankly, strong performance uh, for the uh,
2: global economy. But, but um, let, me, let me push you back on that point on the good stuff, right? Uh, so yes, I mean, we are the, 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 the households are in better shape. The economy is in better shape. We are going to get a tailwind coming from the fading of the Omicron virus. All of that is good stuff, but we do know that uh, some of the increase in oil prices will necessarily get passed on to higher inflation. Now, in the past, in the last 10 years, when the economies weren't in that strong state where uh, firms didn't have uh, pricing power as much as they do now, uh, whenever we had these shocks to food inflation or shocks to, let's say, uh, infl- uh, 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 energy inflation, they were you know, not very long lasting. And more importantly, they never got past that much into core inflation or to inflation expectations. Uh, The question is now whether they get passed on, more of that gets passed on to core inflation. Let's say if there's higher energy price and along with that higher food prices last, last, let's say for three, four months, as Natasha is indicating. Uh, Because the reason I'm asking this, Bruce, is that, you know, uh, higher inflation driven by supply side shocks, typically, uh, you know, central banks will look through it. But the question is when it gets passed on to core inflation, central banks will be forced to react. And if today's world is such that more of it gets passed into core inflation, we will get central banks to actually react to it, no?
0: Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot to, to unpack there. First of all, I think central banks have every reason to be reacting, uh, even if the oil price story wasn't passed through to core. Um, and that you know simply reflects the fact that they're uh, sitting with still hugely... Uh, large gaps between their policy stances and neutral, at least for the DM central banks. Uh, and we do have um, tight labor markets and strong growth. I think the point you're raising is an important one, but it's not one which is going to get resolved, I think, uh, in in the next few months, which is in a world in which there has already been a significant overshoot in inflation, which we haven't really seen in the DM in such a long time and a world in which energy prices are gonna add even more to that. Um, whether we've breached levels on inflation that it starts to become a more important factor in the price and wage setting um, uh, equation. Uh, I don't think we are seeing that in a very clear way yet but I do worry that that dynamic begins to take hold in a way that, you know, as you said a few minutes ago, um, energy price uh, shocks over the last twenty-five years really haven't had any clear uh, pass-through to core inflation, at least in the in the major developed economies. And it may just be an adding-on factor here that does uh, contribute to it. I, I think, to my point of view, the the bottom line will be that um, unless the Fed sees clear evidence that something is doing, you know, damage to growth in a, in an absolute sense, not just in relative to whatever your baseline is, uh, or that we get more significant stress in financial conditions, and you did mention some extremes on sanctions, which could cause some problems on that front, um, that they're gonna continue to move forward on what they've been guiding us, which is the um, uh, the tightening, which we now believe is gonna get you fed moves of 25 basis points every meeting for the rest of this year. So,
2: um, the, um... What about the opposite, Bruce? I mean, I know that we don't have it in our forecast. We have the Fed moving only by, with, the, with the initial uh, hike of 25 and keeping that pace for a considerable period of time um, almost every meeting this year. But, you know, there are many clients whom I speak with, and many of them will ask the question, uh, given the state of uh, inflationary pressures in the U.S., given that we are continuing to get surprised on the upside uh, and the fact that, you know, there is a considerable gap, as you pointed out, between where we are today, a half, eight 8% to 2%, which is the average, uh, which, which, is, which is sort of the target for the Fed. Why can't they move in 50 basis points clips, at least, you know, the first move just to signal how their commitment and to, to, to bring in that inflation? So I think, the
0: decision between twenty five and fifty hasn't been made yet, so we want to be careful. And we do have an employment report and a CPI report coming up before the the meeting, and I think that can have some bearing on the on the decision. However, I think what we're hearing from Fed officials uh, is that the broad, i think inclination is to start with the twenty five. I think you start with the twenty five. Uh, to get the ball rolling, see how markets respond to it. I think a 50, which the Fed didn't do in 94, it didn't do in 2004, it really hasn't done uh, a 50 um, uh, at the start of a a, a rate hiking cycle uh, going back a long ways, uh, would be potentially disruptive because it would signal not just a uh, a move that the Fed is is going towards neutral, but actually send a signal, which they haven't been sending up till now, that they're, they're feeling so... Uh, worried that they have to move quickly enough, and possibly that signals a move towards a restrictive stance. I don't think the Fed is there. I don't think they need to do that once they get the ball rolling and tell us they're on a steady pace. And I think they have the flexibility early on in this cycle, which is if we're sitting here and we've we've watched the Russian conflict play out and we've gotten a little more information on how the inflation processes turning into the year, if there is strong growth and there is deeper inflation pressures, then I think it's probably at that time, the more appropriate thing uh, to consider doing 50 um, and, and and move more aggressively. But um, there's no doubt that the Fed hasn't made that decision yet. And, and the data is, set, is sensitive to it. But I would actually say that the tension around Russia and uh, oil prices here, if anything, on the margin is a force to kind of uh, talk more towards the 25 than the 50, at least at the March meeting. Again, what happens after that, we'll see. Let's just end on um, the note of where could there be a pressure point in EM that you might want to raise here at this point? Uh, obviously, oil at 115 is is a pretty significant move up. Uh, there's other commodity markets that are moving. Um, there's possible, as you noted, some some potential ramifications through financial markets of US sanctions. Is there a, a specific pressure point in EM worth highlighting here that we want to pay attention to as we as we watch this story play out?
2: So I think, you know, the places where you know inflation is already a problem, you know, I'm talking about Latin America, see four economies, clearly you know the central banks will get worried because you're adding one more pressure uh, to a very very extended period of high inflation, uh, and clearly uh, we still are waiting for the rate hikes that have already taken place and in some places substantial rate hikes to start having their impact being felt on any kind of reasonable disinflation, which still hasn't started. Uh, but if but I, but I think that you know central bankers as you know usually are reluctant to. You know, react to supply side uh, inflation immediately. Uh, they will clearly will react to it if this lasts for a long time, and people and 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 inflation expectations get uh, get get spikes because of that. You know that that we'll have to wait and see, as as we as we talked about. Uh, but I think that in emerging markets, uh, I think there has been a. Uh, you know, t- tendency for fiscal policy to play a big role in breaking the pass-through of crude oil onto pump prices. Almost every uh, emerging market that I know of has significant amount of excise taxes imposed on uh, you know oil prices at the, at the retail level, and usually they will play around with that. Uh, to cushion the impact. My guess is that that will also be the reaction of uh, most central, most emerging markets. Uh, You know, cut back on excise duties, add a little bit of subsidies uh, for uh, low-income families, et cetera, to cushion the blow and to cushion the impact on retail prices. But clearly, there are limits to how much you can do that. Obviously, if it's extended for a period of time, even that uh, you know, option uh, it com- comes to an end. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how long it lasts and how big that big, big that uh, the oil price shock is. Uh, but regardless of you know, whether you use fiscal policy to break down this pass-through, I think you know, oil importing uh, countries, uh, country, you know, countries like India, uh, which are uh, Korea which are very large oil importers necessarily will get hit by very large oil import bills and you know those are the places where I think the concern would be that a sudden rise in uh, in current in, in uh, oil imports, is going to put pressure on exchange rates, but for now, I think uh, they all seem to be in a reasonably strong position to cushion, uh, to 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 absorb that blow. None of these countries have very large current account deficits, so for now, we are okay. Uh, but again, you know, I think it's the how long this shock lasts is clearly, and and what does it, and what else accompanies it, uh, where there is a massive. Tightening of financial conditions because of spillovers into financial markets, etc. I think those will become uh, big factors in, in, in the in the coming days.
0: So let's let's end it there, and and let's just sort of recognize that we've created a uh, a new uncertainty in the global uh, macro outlook. One which uh, definitely adds some downside risk to our our very upbeat growth forecast for the next couple of quarters. But we don't think is going to be um, uh, decisive in terms of that, that outcome. Um, and one which if it is not decisive in weakening growth is gonna to add to inflation pressure and potentially um, create uh, further uh, pressure for this dynamic to take hold, which might have a more powerful impact on inflation even as some of the uh, more temporary um, impulses start to fade. And that of course, then feeds uh, not just into our Fed call, but uh, certainly reinforces our broader call that there's a lot of work here uh, for central banks around the world uh, to continue to do. So I'll end it there. And thanks everyone for listening and hope we can continue this conversation next time on Global Data Pod. Thank you. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded in February 2022.